that's a great picture there to open up the show. Uh, I'm Lou Eisen. Welcome to Ring Talk. This is me, my disheveled shelf, wearing my Muhammad Ali shirt. Uh, and I'm wearing it for a reason. We're going to discuss this in next week's show. Next week is October 30th. One week from today, it's the 48th anniversary. And I was there at Maple Leaf Gardens watching in close circuit with my father when Muhammad Ali climbed the mountaintop and beat George Foreman when he was like a 6-7 to 1 underdog. No one thought he could do it. 48 years ago next week. But today we're talking about, along with that fight, probably, and, and the first LA Liston fight, one of my top one or two all-time great fights. It's my hero, one of my heroes, George Foreman. And I always joke with George that he, he, you know, he retired, died, and came back as Muhammad Ali. November 5th, 1994, George Foreman destroys the ghosts of Zaire and reclaims his soul and the undisputed world heavyweight title by knocking out Michael Moore in the 10th round. That night, I was doing stand-up comedy in Kitchener, Ontario. No, I'm not bragging. And I had a, there was a comic there who's long since passed away, but a huge boxing fan, an amateur boxer named Dave Hook. And I had taped the fight. I had taped this fight. And, and he drove me home. He lived in Kitchener, but he drove me all the way back to my apartment on Tychester in Toronto. And we didn't have the radio on. We didn't know what was going on. And I taped the fight. So the fight was over. Rerun the tape, put it on. And the first couple, and we're just sitting there like with our hands clenched. Just, you know, please, please let George win, please. And Foreman is losing every round. He's getting hammered. Now, I I didn't know, you know, he, I, he keeps, during the fight, November 5th, 1994, MGM is where the fight took place. And and the Grand Garden Arena in Las Vegas. Uh, nine months before the fight, Foreman, I mean, this is such an exciting topic for me because when he won that night, you know, I looked over at my friend Dave, we were both crying. And we just looked up in the sky and said, thank you. Thank you, God, thank you. Because that one moment, that one moment, Foreman allowed the entire world to be happy. It was like the boxing God said, the boxing gods looked at the world and said, everyone can be happy right now at this moment. And that's what happened. Foreman wasn't supposed to win. Foreman had fought before against Holyfield. And Holyfield had dominated Foreman. Foreman did his best to make it close. And he hit Holyfield some shots. When I spoke to Holyfield when I met him in Hamilton, Ontario, and um, he said Foreman hit him a shot in the mouth where he came back to the corner and asked his trainer if his teeth were still in his mouth. He said his mouth, his teeth, his gums were numb for days. He'd never been hit like that. George Chevallo, the immortal George Chevallo, the greatest Canadian athlete of all time, George Chevallo, I asked him, what's the difference between getting hit by George Foreman and getting hit by Joe Frazier? And he said, George Foreman hit me so hard, the hair on my big toe hurt. And I just, I, I, had, I couldn't believe it because I thought, I can't imagine being in that kind of pain where the hair on your toes hurt.
to another episode of Ring Talk. Today we're going to talk about one of my all-time favorite fights. The, uh, seven days from now, one week from today, is October 30th. And that's an important day, not because of Halloween the next day. It's important because 48 years ago that day, Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali, the greatest fighter, the greatest person of the 20th century, climbed the mountaintop again and defeated George Foreman to win his title in a fight in which he was a huge underdog. And I always would kid George that after that, George Foreman, you know, in 19, retired. And after he retired, he he uh, he came back. It's almost like he died and came back as Muhammad Ali. The Foreman fight with Michael Moore is one of my all-time favorite fights. I love George Foreman. You can't know George Foreman and not love him. He's such a lovable, warm, brilliant man. and. I'm telling you, I was always told by everyone, including George, no one in the history of boxing going back 300 years could punch, could really punch like Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis ended Guy's career. You look at the knockout list of Joe Lewis during his career, it's phenomenal. Most of those guys fought again. Foreman was like that. Foreman could hit you one shot. Remember the Cooney fight, the Ken Norton fight? Foreman could hit you a shot. You were finished. You weren't just finished boxing. You were done. And... So this fight, Foreman was a big underdog, and no one gave Foreman a chance. And it, it I remember watching this fight. I was a stand-up comedian then. I know, I look funny. And, and I was in Kitchener, Ontario, not that I'm bragging. And my friend, my late friend, Dave Hook, was a comedian on the show, and he drove me from Kitchener back to Toronto. He lived in Kitchener. It was like a, a, an hour and a half drive, but he wanted to see the fight, and I had taped it. So we made a handshake promise. We're not going to watch it or listen to it, excuse me, on the radio. So we get back to my apartment on Tychester near Bathurst in St. Clair in Toronto. We're sitting there. I rewind the VHS tape. It's how long ago it was. We play the fight. And during the whole fight, I'm looking at Dave. And we're both, we didn't know. We we're both like this saying, please, please, please let George win. And in the 10th round, he found magic in a bottle. Left, left hand, jab. Right hand, another jab staggers him, and then that right hand that knocked Michael Moore out. And we were both, when we looked at him, Dave and I were both crying. We we're looking up saying, thank you, thank you so much. It was almost like the boxing gods had said, okay, today everyone in the world gets to be happy for this one moment. It was the most remarkable thing I had seen. He was 45 years old. No one gave him a chance. In fact, nine months before the fight, they were talking about the fight, and there's a great documentary on George Foreman. And Jim Lampley had the greatest call I've ever seen in my life because when Foreman knocked him out, Jim Lampley just said, paused and said, it happened. It happened. And you know what? Anyone around the world you could have said those words to and they knew what you were referring to. They knew you were referring to the fact that George Foreman had climbed this unclimbable, unreachable, you know, uh, the, the, the apex of, of a mountain climbed the Everest of Everest. He, he, had, he had vanquished the demons of Zaire. He had regained his soul and he had claimed the undisputed world heavyweight title. Again, and no one, no criminal sanctioning body like the WBA, no one could take it away from him. He had done what no one said he could do. And his accomplishment is remarkable. Ali's was incredible because Ali lost his prime years. George did it 10 years after being out of boxing. And he didn't drop out because of a religious 
um, conversion. You know, he, he dropped out because he signed a 10-year contract, personal services with Don King, who was a mobster. And Don King wasn't going to let him out. So when the 10 years was up, he came back and started it started his comeback. He wasn't aligned with anyone. But, but eventually Bob Aaron, but more than that, more than that, um, he needed the money for his rec center. So I'm getting ahead of myself in the story. Uh, people tend at times to, I've seen online, uh, a lot of fans of Michael Moore get angry when people celebrate uh, George Foreman. There's no reason to get angry. Michael Moore was a great fighter. Michael Moore was 52-4-1, and he had 40 career knockouts. Michael Moore was the first Southpaw champion, world heavyweight champion. He was a right-hander, but he was a converted Southpaw in order to get his right hand closer to the target and use it more often. And from Brooklyn, New York, he also was the light heavyweight world champion. He stood six foot two. Michael Moore was a really good fighter. He beat Evander Holyfield. He beat a lot of good fighters. So you can't take anything away from Michael Moore. But eight or nine months before the fight, when it was discussed, Jim Lampley said, how are you going to beat him? He's younger than you. He's a lot younger than you. And he's quick. He's a quick fighter, quick hands, quick feet. You know, how can you box him? And, and Foreman had said, I can't outbox him. He's too young and too quick and too skilled. He said, when I want to, I have to knock him out. He said, how are you going to knock him out? He's not going to square up against you. He knows that regardless of your age, if you hit a... George, you know when they say this guy could hit so hard he could drop a charging rhino? George Foreman could drop a charging rhino. He had that one punch, crushing power. So you get him. Foreman was smart. He said, I have to get him. I have I have to lower his guard. So what Foreman did, Foreman always had an awkward left hook, and he kept throwing it, and he didn't really care if it landed, and it didn't a lot of the times. His jab did. But it didn't. And he never got credit for having one off, if not the best jab in boxing history. So he would throw the left hook and Michael Moore would move. Like, you know, he would move out of the way of the left hook. And he would move a half an inch, tenth of an inch to his left. Keep moving and setting him up. Foreman was doing this the whole fight. And finally he moved him enough where he got right in the hand, or right in the path of that right hand. And Foreman had the jab, stag staggered him, right hand staggered him, second jab. And then loaded up, hit him on the chin, and that was it. Teddy Atlas, who trained more, who's one of the all-time great boxing trainers, and just a fantastic person. I love Teddy Atlas. He saw it coming for the whole fight. Whole fight, he kept saying to Michael Moore, don't do this. Don't do this. You're standing in front of him. Don't do this. You're getting too brave. And that's what happens when you're young and cocky. Michael Moore was throwing shots the whole time. And the more you land, the more cocky you get, and the more you stay there and think you can land more. And you just can't do that with a guy like George Foreman. And Michael, or Teddy Atlas kept saying to Michael Moore, every time you land, you got to move. Jab, jab, land your shot, get out. Don't let him counter you. And he goes, he's too slow, can't hit. You know, I, I, I'm going to knock him out. And he said, no, you're not going to knock him out. He hasn't been knocked out. Hollyfield couldn't knock him out. Cooney hit him a good shot and didn't knock him out. It's not going to happen. So just box. You don't have to knock him out. The idea is to win. Who cares if you knock him out? And Moore didn't listen. He kept getting in the pocket more, in the pocket more. And, and you know, George Farmer was so smart in that he was like Max Schmeling in the first Lewis fight. He said, I can't show him what I'm doing in the seventh or eighth round. He's just not in position yet. 
he's still a bit wary. But in the 10th round, he let his guard down. He stood there and, you know, hit him, dropped his hands, you know, and then moved to get out of the way and was sort of, you know, and then formed, okay, now's the time. That's what he said to himself. And then bang. So during the fight, my surrogate father was in Foreman's corner, Angelo Dundee. And Angelo said to him, uh, we're losing rounds, George. And Foreman got angry. He said, shut up. I can't beat him on rounds. I can't outbox him. That's not my skill. I have to, I have to get him to lower his guard. I got to sucker him into a straight right hand. And that's what I'm going to do. And that's what he did. And he, he, he ended him. Moore went on to win the title again a couple of years later, but he was never the same. Uh, Moore was born in Brooklyn. He was a southpaw, as I said, a converted southpaw. And, but he moved to Manesson, Pennsylvania. This is a funny thing. Moore was born November 12, 1967. A year later, George Foreman wins the gold medal at the 1968 Olympics. Now, um, you, you have to watch this because Foreman, I don't know if I have the exact date of when he won it, but he fought four fights. So the first fight, he wins by unanimous decision, the three-round fight. But in the next three fights, he bludgeons. Now, George has only had like 20 amateur fights or so at that point, of which he'd won 16. He bludgeons these guys who, you know, these Soviet fighters, Soviet block fighters, who are in their 30s. George is 20. These guys have been fighting, you know, 12, 13, 15 years. They're not amateurs. They're, they're professional amateurs. You know, they don't fight for money, but they're as good as a professional. And it made no difference. After the first guy the decision, George bludgeoned. I mean, when you watch the Sapolis fight when he wins the gold medal, you know, Sapolis is 32, 33. He's had experience. You know, he's won titles. He knows what he's doing. He figures this is a 20-year-old kid who's only been boxing for two years. There's no way this guy has a chance. And George comes out and 10 seconds in, bang, a jab. Sapolis' nose is shattered. Not just broken, shattered, blood gushing out. You know, 30 seconds later, right hand, bunch of teeth get knocked out. And this guy must be thinking, what on earth is happening? The guy just hit me with like what felt like a baseball bat. And he 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 bludgeoned him for the whole round. Sapulos can't even make it back to his corner barely. He comes out, Foreman hits him again, and he's he he, you know, referee stops it because referee said after if it would have continued, Foreman would have killed him. And he would have. And then Foreman raised a controversy that shone around the world. He waved an American flag. This was the 68 Olympics during the height of what was going on in the civil rights movement in the United States. So Douglas and Carlos ha had had won the, the um, um, Carlos and Edwards, my mistake, excuse me. Uh, Tommy Carlos, John Edwards had won uh, in, in track and field and they did the power salute with, the, with their hand in a black glove. Sorry, so, uh, and, and they got in trouble for that, but they were showing power with fellow African-Americans who were fighting, still fighting for civil rights 103 years after the Civil War had ended. Foreman was looked upon as some by a, a, as a turncoat because he'd waved the American flag, but Foreman wasn't even thinking that. Foreman was thinking, I just want to wave the flag to show the world that it was me who won, and, you know, an American. The thing about George Foreman, of course, was this was a guy that was written off his whole life. You know, he'd been born in the Fifth Ward in Houston. The Fifth Ward, was the toughest place on the planet. And, and 
you know, it's, it was the worst area, borough, in all of the United States. There was nothing like the Fifth Ward. And so he dropped out of school at 15. He said one day he told me he was going to school. And uh, he, he leaves the house. And when no one's looking, he comes back in through the window, goes and sleeps in his room. Sister caught him. And he was shocked. And his sister said, oh, don't worry. You're a loser. I'm a loser. We're all losers. We got no chance. And that upset him. He thought, I'm not a loser. I haven't done anything wrong. But he, he, he'd been a bully. You know, he'd mug people. He was physically very big. But he had one major drawback. He couldn't read or write. And, and no one cared. And so he saw a commercial on TV for the Job Corps. And he went to the Job Corps. He joined. And they sent him to Oregon, where people started to teach him. And he was still belligerent there. You know, he's working in carpentry. And, and he was still very belligerent. And finally, someone said to him, you should try boxing. So he goes and he sees Doc Brodus, who gets him into the ring and shows him how to fight. And George had had thousands of street fights, but he didn't know the actual skills. So Brodus was teaching him the skills. But what Brodus couldn't believe was the, the staggering power that former, you know, they get professionals to come in and train with them. Guys who'd been around for 10, 12, 15 years. And they couldn't go around with him because once he'd land a good shot, they were done. They just crumpled to the canvas. So he starts fighting pro. Broda said to him, listen, you know, you can make good, you can make good money at this. He starts fighting pro after the Olympics. So he, he's getting ready for the Olympics. He's getting trained. And as he's, um, uh, Papa Galt was the name of the guy that trained him. And he's training Foreman. Foreman wins the gold medal. And then he turns pro. Uh, 1969 uh, against Don Waldheim, whom he knocks out. Michael Moore had been born in the previous year. That was the age difference. Foreman is born January 10th, 1949. And uh, Ali's birthday was January 17th, 1942. So there's a seven-year difference. Michael Moore is born November 12th, 1967. So Foreman has his great career. He's doing well. He's beating all these guys. You know, his biggest win was George Chevallo. And I asked him what it was like. I asked George, you know, what what's it like to get hit uh, by, by a guy like Foreman? And he said, it made the toes on my hair hurt. So I can't imagine being hit that hard that the hair on your toes would hurt. But he said, between Foreman and Frazier, Frazier was like getting hit by a mid-sized car at 75 miles an hour. Foreman was like a Mack truck head on at 50. Bang. And he said, just stunning power. And, uh, you know, he said, Foreman's power just reverberated. You never forgot it. So he gets a shot at Joe Frazier in 1973. And I, I wanted to see the fight, but it was closed circuit. And my father didn't want to pay. And so he's flipping channels at night. Somebody made a, stake, made a mistake at a TV station and got the feed. So my father wakes me up and I'm watching the fight. And Foreman, who was a huge underdog, he was supposed to be just a walkover for Joe Frazier. Frazier wasn't really in great shape for that fight. He took Foreman easily. And Frazier, you know, 5'11 and a half, you know, came in at 200 pounds, 204 pounds. Foreman, 6'4", 225. Foreman annihilated him, knocked him down six times. Second round, hit him a shot so hard it lifted Frazier in the air that one guy wrote, it's like watching a fire hydrant get ripped out of the pavement. And you could hear Angel Dundee sitting beside Howard Crossell starts yelling, stop the fight, Arthur, at Arthur McKinney. You know, he's going to kill him. And he stopped the fight. 
Foreman was a huge underdog, and now he was the world champion. And now no one, people thought, you know, I, I think it was, um, it might have been Jerry Eisenberg, but I'm not sure who wrote uh, um, about Foreman that it's going to take the Sixth Army to, you know, if you want to beat Foreman, he's going to have to get shelled by the, by the Sixth Army first, and then you bring in the Marines, because he's just so imposing a figure. No one thought Foreman would lose, and you know, who defends his title against Joe King Roman, which was easy fight. And then against Ken Norton, Norman was supposed to be a good fight for him. Norman was supposed to be a guy that, you know, it would give him a great fight. Norton had beaten Ali, you know, and Ali won the rematch. But Norton, uh, whatever it was, Foreman just walked over him in two rounds and knocked him out. Norton's plan was to keep backing up and sucker him into a right hand. Didn't work. Foreman was so much smarter in the ring than people gave him credit for. And Norton wasn't really prepared. You know, he keeps backing up, but Foreman keeps tagging him with that gigantic left hand. And then Foreman sneaks over a right hand on the chin and Norton's legs wobbled. And that was it. He goes down in the round a couple times, first round and then in the second round, he just ended it. And so no one wants to fight George Foreman except Ali moves along. Ali comes along and beats Foreman in a huge upset. And Foreman is now, he's at odds. He's never experienced a professional defeat. He didn't think it was in the realm of possibility. You saw in interviews with him before the fight, and someone said, if you lose, and he would say, excuse me? If you lose, he said, I said, excuse me. He never, he never contemplated losing. It wasn't even, he, he, he couldn't think of that. So now, now he's on the comeback. And he's fighting different fighters. He had the great times. Then he won Lyle. Jimmy Young was a real slick fighter. And he, he lost to Ali, but he gave a great accounting of himself. And he beats George Foreman. He knocks him down. Superior technique and skill. And after the fight and Foreman's dressing room, and by this point in his corner, He's got Gil Clancy. He, he, he says, I, I, I'm, uh, he thought he had died. He, so he said he saw a vision of Christ and he became a born-again Christian. And Gil Clancy told me he was suffering from extreme um, uh, dehydration. The fight was in Puerto Rico and the temperature was close to 110 degrees. Foreman also tried to come back after uh, with uh, Foreman versus Five in Toronto, where he beat five nondescript fighters. So. After the loss to Jimmy Young, he's had enough. He's had enough of the comments, the criticism. He retires. He said, "I'm, you know what? I'm done." And uh, 1977, he just said, "That's it. I'm done." Michael Moore, who I said was born in Brooklyn, um, Michael Moore uh, fought, started fighting. He, he moved to uh, Pennsylvania from Brooklyn, from a broken home. So his grandfather took care of him. And introduced him to boxing. He's playing football before. And, you know, the, where, where he grew up was in a mill town. And uh, he liked playing football. But his grandfather was a guy named Henry Smith. And at, at around 11 or 12, he would bring Michael Moore to the gym. And Michael started to like this. And as he started to do well in his amateur career, he moved to Detroit to beat the famous Gronk gym under one of the greatest trainers of all time, Emmanuel Stewart. Emmanuel had a lot of great fighters like Tommy Hearns, Lemons Lewis. But he was really, and Klitschko, but he was really great with heavyweight fighters. For some reason, he just had the knack. Very smart guy. And, as, you know, Michael Moore said, listen, with heavy, uh, with the Kronk Jim, 
there's a lot of notoriety there. They just, you don't get respect unless you produce in the ring. And he said, I kicked a lot of ass in that ring before people started to respect me. So his first fight was in 1988. And he won his first uh, 24 fights, actually, by knockout. So, you know, after only 11 bouts, December 3rd, 1988, he beats Ramsey Hassan for the WBO light heavyweight title. And he defended that quite a few times. Uh, I think it was like, I was going to say 11, but it's actually, I think, nine times he defended the title. And then he couldn't make the weight anymore, which is a problem with him throughout his career. Plus, there's so much more money at heavyweight. So he moves up to heavyweight. He starts fighting, and he wins fights against different guys, Mike White, Everett, Bigfoot, Martin, who lost a fight to Riddick Bowe years later. But Martin was the first guy to knock him down. He gets up, and then he, later on, he's got to fight Smokenberg Cooper. Cooper, if you remember, is the guy that had almost ended Willie DeWitt's life in two rounds out west. Cooper wasn't big. He was 5'10", 5'9", but he could fight. Boy, could he punch. And uh, he dropped Moore twice, but Moore got up and dropped him twice and stopped him in five rounds. So the later knockouts of Moore are kind of hard to understand. I think they were more due to mental and emotional lapses than physical. And he stops him, and, you know, uh, after that fight, though, Emmanuel Stewart drops him because he's just not paying attention. He's, he's having a hard time focusing in the gym. Michael Moore, when I spoke to Teddy Atlas, Michael Moore suffered from a lack of confidence. You'd think it's surprising that fighters have that because you need that to be successful in the ring. But he had a tough time believing in himself. And the guys didn't only have to train him. They had, you know, they had to, to sort of like mollycoddle him, sort of like baby him or father him. And a lot of trainers don't do that. A lot of them are like, you're a grown man. The motivation's got to come from within. So he, he goes from Tony Ayala, uh, and then he's trained by Georgie Benton, one of the all-time great boxing trainers. He went 3-0 and with Benton, two KOs, and then he goes to Teddy Atlas, and he defeated Holyfield on, I'm just, I'm just getting the date, April 22nd, 1994, to win the world heavyweight titles. And Atlas, you got to watch that fight because Atlas had a big hand in not only training him, but helping him win. Because what Atlas did was, after one of the rounds, when it seemed like Michael Moore was just walking through what was going on, he comes back to his corner when the round's over, and there's Teddy Atlas sitting in the in his stool. And he says, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm going to go out next round because you have no interest in fighting him. And he said, he grabbed his face like this, and he said, Michael, Every man gets one chance to redeem themselves, to reach the top of the mountain in their life. One chance. This is your chance. There is no tomorrow. Tomorrow is now. Right now is tomorrow. You can't tomorrow look at me and say, I want him again. You have him now. Do you want to fight him? Yes. Do you want to fight him? Yes. I don't believe you. I'm going to stop the fight. Do you want to fight him? Yes. And get out there and beat him. And he did. And it worked wonders. It was such a fantastic speech. I'm, I, I'm paraphrasing, but he was saying, you know, you got to do it now. This is your chance. And he did. It was, it was, a, it, you know, it, it was a majority decision. It was very controversial, but he got the title. He hadn't lost yet as a professional. And then he faces George Foreman. Now, Foreman, at that point, has his comeback. He fought Evander Holyfield. 
and he'd lost to him, but he, he, boy, Holyfield had said he'd never been hit like that. He'd lost to Tommy Morrison, and he just, he, he didn't think, people didn't think that he would have a chance against a very young Michael Moore. And George Foreman, as we know, when they come back, he, he wanted to fight Mike Tyson, but as Mike Tyson said, I can't win this fight because if I win, I beat an old guy, and if I lose, I lost to an old guy. But George said that he wanted to fight Tyson. And when he was on David Letterman, he said, yes, absolutely want to fight Tyson because Tyson fights my fight. Tyson will square up and come at me. And that's what George wanted. If you're going to come at me like that in straight line, and this was after Tyson was no longer with Kevin Rudy and wasn't moving side to side, and you're going to trade shots, he said, no man alive can beat me. And I still believe that. Foreman's in his 70s. I don't think – I think today – Anyone he hits with that straight right hand, whether it's Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder, whoever is done, and regardless of age, he's that strong. So Foreman uh, had beaten so many guys. The biggest comeback, I guess, of his career, biggest win, was against Jerry Cooney. And it's with my very dear friend, Wayne Tramiel. We're watching it. And we're sitting at a bar in Toronto. And before the fight, Wayne says, and I saw live, like a uh, closed circuit, but also live at fights with Wayne, hundreds of fights. And he said to me, Lutens, when he looks a bit scared. And I said, you know what, Wayne? I'm terrified and I'm not even there. And Cooney looked apprehensive. Cooney, great guy, very good fighter. Um, he comes out and Cooney was a strong guy. And, you know, so even fight in the first couple of minutes, Cooney lands a, a wild, not a wild, lands a right hand, and Foreman's off balance. I mean, he really, Foreman felt that punch. You could feel it. And then Foreman comes back and starts landing heavy shots on, on Cooney, you know, and starts beating him off round ends. He come up with a second round, hits Cooney again a couple of times. Cooney's knees sag, and he lands this bang right hand right on his chin, and Cooney goes down. And unbelievably, unlike every other opponent, except for Joe Frazier, Cooney got up, you know? I mean, Norton got up a couple of times too, but Cooney got up. In his second incarnation, very few people got up after being clobbered by George. It was unbelievable. But then George walked in, you know, uh, um, hit him with an uppercut, straight right hand, uppercut. Cooney fell face first, fight's over. And George Foreman was for real. So now George... It's making 10, 20, you know, millions of dollars, not, not just from boxing, but he has the George Foreman grill, which I have. And, and he has books. He has a clothing line. Uh, he does a TV show. You know, he breeds horses. He owns a NASCAR team. I mean, a very smart guy. And it was all open at the job court where he went when he was a kid because he couldn't read. He, he, he was, you know, illiterate. So, he said to me one time, and I was illiterate up to the age of eight or nine until I learned to read. He said it was like going from a dark room into a light room. And when he did that, he said the whole world changed and he couldn't stop reading and he couldn't stop thirsting for knowledge. This is why he, he had such an empathy for Sonny Liston, who he really loved. He, he sparred with him for five rounds after he turned pro. Mind you, Liston had 22 ounce gloves. But he said, he told me a story. He was driving with Liston once on a street in, in, I think, L.A. And Liston said, turn left. And so they get at the next light. And they get to the light, and he turns left. And he goes, no, 
the other left, meaning turn to the right. He said, Liston didn't know. Liston didn't know, couldn't read or write, couldn't count. And he said he felt so sad for him because he lived in such darkness. He was at everyone's mercy. So Foreman had escaped that. And by making his comeback now, he was redeeming himself. And as I said before, when he first started to come back, his lawyer, who'd been a federal lawyer, you know, George was 300 and something pounds. They called Don King and said, do you want an option offer as to how much does he weigh? It's close to 400 because nah, King laughed. He'll have a heart attack before he does anything. And then as George loses the weight and starts climbing up the ratings, King wants it. And he said, no, no, we have it on tape. You can't have him. Cannot have him now. You know, it's a federal lawyer. Can't threaten a federal employee. And can't threaten anyone, but especially a federal employee. So you don't get a piece of this. George was firmly in control of his career. And he got Bob Aaron to help, to help promote him. And he loses to Tommy Morrison. People disagree with me all the time in that fight. I thought it was a lot closer uh, than it was. And, you know, he's not really given much of a chance. You've lost to Tommy Morrison. You've lost to Evander Holyfield. You know, what's the point? And when he fights Michael Moore, it's like, well, this is it, George. You know, you're 45. I mean, if you don't win this fight, there's really no more point to going on because there's really no one else out there worth you going after. So Morris, the champion, got seven million. Foreman got three million. The foreman made way more than three million from ancillary rights, from the promotion of the fight. And you know, these guys, it, it, after the ninth round, all three judges had the fight scored for George Foreman, or for excuse me, for Michael Moore, right? And and Jerry Roth. And Chuck Giampa had an 88-83. And that was a good score. That was reflective of what it was. For some reason, Jer um, Dwayne, Dwayne Ford had an 86-85. Excuse me. Chuck Giampa had an 88-83 along with Jerry Roth. And so Foreman knew he was losing the fight, but he knew his time would come. Because he knew from being a young guy himself that the more success you have, the more you're going to go to the well. The more you're going to stand there and trade with that guy, you just can't resist. He, you know, more you could see it in Moore's eyes. You know, it's like Ted Williams' last at bat for the Boston Red Sox when he hit a home run. The pitch before the guy threw him the same pitch and he fell down. Ted Williams was 42. The pitcher was 21. He said he could just see in the young guy's eyes, saying, "Oh, look at that old fool, Ted Williams. He's finished. I'm going to throw him another fastball." And Williams stood there, thought, "Okay, you go ahead, kid." And Williams hits it out of the park, last hit ever, home run, which is how heroes go out while he's yelling, running around the bases, yelling at the pitcher, who the F do you think you're pitching to? I'm Ted and Williams, the greatest hitter of all time. And it's the same. Foreman wasn't like that, but Foreman was looking at him, Michael Moore, thinking, I could just see it. He's going to stand there and trade. He's going to think he can knock me out. And for the whole fight, he was throwing those wild lefts just to keep moving him over. And as I said before, Teddy Atlas is saying, don't do this. Don't do this. Hold your ground. Don't keep moving. Don't move into the range of his right hand. And when you fight a southpaw, you don't, you know, if I'm fighting a southpaw, I'm going to keep moving to my left so I don't move into the range of this, even though I'm a southpaw, so I don't move into the range of his left hand. And Moore couldn't resist. And you can't blame Moore for this. Because Moore was beating the hell out of him. He was landing four, five, six, seven punch combinations. 
Foreman's eyes were starting to close, but Foreman kept having that jab. And one thing you notice in the first to the last round, the 10th round, when Foreman lands the jab, it hurt every time it landed on more, but it did more than hurt and held him in place. And he catches lightning in a bottle, left hand jab, right hand, staggers him, another left, and then bam. And when more went down, I just thought, it's over. There's no way on earth. I mean, no, an elephant would not be able to rise from a punch like that. And Moore didn't move. And after the fight, he says, it's kind of funny. I guess if I'd won, I'd have the Michael Mormon grill, Michael, Michael Moore grill. So it wasn't personal. He congratulated Michael Moore. He said, you're a great champ. You have a great future ahead of you. You've got nothing to be ashamed of. This wasn't like the old George Foreman who would beat a guy and then get in his face. So... It was Moore's first defense of his title. And, and you know, a couple of years later, Moore came back and he won again and eventually lost again, unfortunately. And the fight was named the Ring Magazine Knockout of the Year. Formula was the Ring Magazine Comeback of the Year. And uh, it's kind of sad because when I look at here, I got Michael Moore's record in front of me. So, um, you know, Michael Moore fights and after the Foreman fight, uh, he retired briefly, but then he came back. Um, uh, Matt Atlas continued, Teddy Atlas encouraged him to come back. Couldn't get a rematch with Foreman. And uh, he regained the IBF title when he defeated Axel, defeated Axel Schultz, who Foreman had also beaten too. The criminal uh, sanctioning body, WBA, took away Foreman's title because the recognition, because he wouldn't fight the number one contender, Tony Tucker. But, you know, heavyweight champ, you fight whoever you want. And Foreman's the big draw. He's revived boxing. And to do this to him and throw all the money he's made for boxing out the window is just incredibly stupid, but typical of criminal organizations like the WBA, WBC, and IBF. So Michael Moore comes back and he's, you know, he beats Axel Schultz and he beats Francois Botha. And he beats uh, Von Bean. But, you know, Atlas, or excuse me, Moore comes back and beats those guys. Atlas had left him the way uh, Emmanuel Stewart had left him because Moore just wouldn't focus. And it was just too much. He hired Freddie Roach and to train him for the fight with Hollyfield. And Hollyfield dropped him five times in this title rematch. And give him more credit, he stood in there. But the fight was stopped after the eighth round. Now, it, uh, it, his next, I guess the last big moment of his career, he took on David Tua. And um, Tua knocked him out in 30 seconds. And I, I don't think, I, I think that fight, Moore's heart and soul weren't in it. Emotionally, he didn't care. He may have been trained and looked like a fighter, but he had a broken heart. He just was in a state of depression and didn't really care. And that's how Tua took him out. Tua blitzed him without a doubt. And was a better man, but I don't know if, you know, Maybe it would not have been different 10 years earlier or five years earlier. He lost the fight and uh, he made a comeback. He took a three-year break, started beating nondescript guys. And then, you know, that was it. And then retired to become a trainer at the wildcard gym. Foreman, uh, after, you know, there's Axel Schultz. He was going to have a fight with Larry Holmes, but that never came off. And eventually when his mother passed away, he retired because he promised his mother that, um, you know, once she was gone, he would retire from boxing forever. He didn't need the money anymore. He had proved this point. He was he was the two-time undisputed world heavyweight champion. 
He'd come back to win the title 10 years um, after, uh, 10 years and, and five days after he had lost it. Imagine that. 10 years and five days, November 5th. He had lost the World Heavyweight title and he had climbed that mountain. And as I said, he breeds German Shepherds, he breeds horses, he owns a NASCAR team. Very, very wealthy man, very kind man. And so is Michael Moore. Michael Moore is a wonderful person. He's a great trainer. He, he's had Joey Abel, who's, who's a boxer, and has trained him. He's worked at Freddie Roach's wildcard gym. You know, Michael Moore had a lot of titles. Michael Moore was the light heavyweight champion. Uh, he had nine defenses, 88 to 91 WBO. That's not, not anything to laugh at. That's significant. He was the WBO heavyweight champ. He had to give that up to go after the other titles. He was the WBA IBF heavyweight champ. And he, and, and he 94, and he won again in 96 and held it for 96, 97. Don't criticize Michael Moore because he accomplished an incredible amount during his Got it out one of the top five greatest to walk the face of this earth. His story is extremely inspirational. You you can't know George Foreman and not love the man. He's just that kind of person. He's so huggable. He's got nice words for everyone. He's so smart. When you speak to him, you just think to yourself, I gotta watch this fight. This fight is is uh, available on YouTube. It was on HBO, even if only for Jim Lampley's Immortal Call. It happened. It happened. Because Jim Lampley, he said, I was thinking what to do during this fight. I never thought to me, never occurred that George would win. I didn't know what to say. So I paused and I just said whatever I thought, which was it happened. And it had. He'd come back. He'd reclaimed the world heavyweight title. To me, one of the all time great stories in the history of professional sports going back a thousand years, 10 years. And five days after losing the title, he comes back and reclaims it to a guy he's almost 20 years older than. And the prime of his career and shows that beyond a doubt, George Foreman and any and every era of boxing from 1700 until today, if he was in the ring, would be supreme above all other men. And now he's one of the most beloved men on the face of the earth. I'm Lou Eisen. This has been Ring Talk. Next week, although we've talked about it before, we're going to talk about the significance of the Ali fight because the fight, the, the show will be on October 30th, the 48th anniversary. So we're going to talk about the significance and the buildup and, 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 the, and the after effect of the Ali fight with uh, George Foreman and how it affected both men's lives and how it springboarded Ali into fighting a lot more, a lot more than he should have probably, but that was not my decision at all. Thank you for watching. Have a great week, and we'll see you again next Sunday at the same time at 2 p.m. Take care.